On this episode of Treasure Mountain, we have Arjan Kovalo and Venable Nisabo, who are both working to establish a community of practice in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Together, they are working to establish Clear Mountain Monastery near Seattle. Arjan Kovalo is an Ohio-born monk who, having been introduced to meditation through the Goenka tradition, first entered the monastic life in 2006. After receiving full ordination from Arjan Pasano and Arjan Amaro at Abhyagiri Buddhist Monastery in California, Arjan Kovalo spent the next decade training at monasteries in the Arjan Cha tradition in America and Thailand. In 2020, after a year practicing at a Paok Sayuru Monastery, Arjan Kovalo entered the Dharma Realm Buddhist University in Ukiah, California, where he is currently studying Pali and Sanskrit, among other courses. Until the end of his formal studies, Arjan Kovalo will be participating in the growing Clear Mountain Monastery community remotely during the winter and summer breaks. After finishing his studies, Arjan Kovalo will join the community in person on a more regular basis. After finishing college in 2012, Venerable Nisabo left his native Washington to go forth as a Buddhist monk in Thailand. He received full ordination the following spring under Arjan Anan, a senior disciple of a renowned meditation master Arjan Chah, and spent the following years training in forest monasteries throughout Thailand, Australia and the US. While staying with some of the lineage's most respected teachers, he grew to believe the Thai forest tradition's balance of communal life with solitary forest dwelling, careful adherence to the monastic precepts and focus on meditation represented a faithful embodiment of the original Buddhist path. Moreover, his time with contemporary masters such as Arjan Anan, Arjan Pasano and Arjan Jayasaro convinced him that such a path could yield great fruit in the heart, even amidst the complexities of modern life. He currently resides in Seattle as part of Clear Mountain Monastery's aspiration. Together, Arjan Kovalo and Venable Nisabo are working to establish Clear Mountain Monastery and have already set up a top quality online teaching presence through their Clear Mountain Dharma YouTube channel and podcast. And we're going to find out about their journeys and current projects in this episode of Treasure Mountain. So join us as we search for the treasure within. Thank all of our listeners for tuning in to Treasure Mountain Podcast. And remember, if you like this podcast, to subscribe via your favorite podcast player and to tell your friends about this new podcast in which we speak to Buddhist teachers and community leaders from around the world. It's time to talk to our guests, Arjun Kovalo and Venerable Nisabo. How are you, Venerables? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm really glad to be here with you, Saul. And it's good to see you too, Tanisabo. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah, it was uh, very nice to have you reach out to us Sol, a bit ago and just uh, a pleasure to get to speak today. Well, I really appreciate that you're both taking the time to uh, share your experience and wisdom with, 
with our listeners. Look, our first question for today, I'd like to ask you about uh, how you came to be in um, uh, the life of a Buddhist monk, because the life of a bhikkhu is one which is wholly dedicated to study, practice, and realization of the Dharma. So I'm interested to know what circumstances led you both to making that commitment to the life of a Buddhist monk? Yeah, maybe I can jump in there first. Um, so yeah, when I was about 20 years old, um, a friend in university uh, recommended that I attend one of these 10-day Goenka meditation retreats. And um, actually, let me go back about nine months before I attended that first uh, Goenka retreat. I, would, I had started reading some spiritual books um, from Eastern religions and was finding them fascinating. Bhagavad Gita, um, perhaps, yeah, the, the Tao Te Ching I really loved. Um, and being a American hippie-ish uh, type, um, I was doing the things which American hippie type people do and yeah, actually uh, took mushrooms, which um, yeah, gave me this very profound experience, a life transformative experience. Um, and it was not psychedelic and it was not short lived. Uh, basically, um, it was totally anxiolytic, meaning that it reduced all of my anxiety for about a month and a half. I just basically, yeah, ate these mushrooms and was hanging out with friends. And then within an hour, it's like all of the background anxiety, both social anxiety and, um, and existential anxiety being by myself, just totally muted out. And I was able to just uh, interact in a very non-ego uh, absorbed way, um, very open to the, to the world around me. And I was like, this is amazing. And, and I was like, of course, you know, I'm like, okay, I found it. I've, you know, this is what life should be like, basically relating to people in a way which is not ego first um, and it is very open. And I'm like, this is amazing. And, but I didn't know how I did it. Basically, I, well, I do. I took some mushrooms and, um, <laughs> but that wasn't the magic uh, step because I tried mushrooms again and had horrible experiences. Um, and I didn't know how to get, basically after that month and a half, it gradually started fading away. And I'm like, I got to, get back to this and you know kept kept reading spiritual books and then yeah about nine months later my friend got me to do this uh, Goenka course and uh, that really transformed my life because it it really taught me that you know it didn't feel like that mushroom trip but it it did give me an insight that uh, it's possible to train the mind one it, it gave me some insight on how crazy the thinking mind is um and how painful it can be when one is trying not to just follow the whims of, of whatever I want to crave next. Um, that's really painful. But then experiencing moments in that retreat where, yeah, just by following this method, coming back to the breath, coming back to the body, uh, watching the mind in a certain way, which I had never tried to do for any ex extended, very extended periods of time before. Um, yeah, that the mind can settle and can know this type of peace, this type of happiness, really, which was of a categorically different nature than uh, the pleasure seeking and excitement seeking I was just totally obsessed with. And so that really changed the, the course of my life and um, got me inclining towards a meditation. Basically, after that 10 day retreat, started keeping the five precepts 
kept meditating hour in the morning, hour in the evening, and kept reading, eventually came across Access to Insight, which is uh, an early Buddhist portal. Um, and through there, came across the Pali Canon and grew more and more in my faith uh, of uh, Pali Theravada Buddhism, which is kind of the basis for that Goenka uh, approach. Uh, and then on Access to Insight, also came across the teachings of the Thai Forest tradition and was very inspired by those and learned also that there were monasteries in America where non-Asian people could go and actually uh, ordain. And I'm like, okay, this, from that first meditation retreat, I was like, okay, I want to do this for the rest of my life. This is a very different type of education that I'm getting in, in school. And um, it's, it's one which I really need to learn. I need to learn how to uh, how to train the mind and how to look at that, just look at the mind, be with the mind. And um, uh, yeah, ended up finding um, these monasteries in America in 2006, um, very inspired, moved to the monastery, had given away all my stuff. And I had been giving away stuff for years, but gave away the rest of my stuff and just had a backpack and walked into the monastery in 2006. And um, yeah, basically took on the training and then 2010 ended up ordaining at a Bayagiri monastery with Lumpur Pasana. So, Wow, that's a fantastic story. And uh, it really just uh, comes through to me the importance of meditation in changing your heart. This isn't just an idea or being inspired by ideas. It's being inspired by changed experience, is that it sounds like to me. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, Venerable uh, how did you manage to end up yeah, on the monastic path? My uh, parents were, were somewhat what I'd refer to as Buddhist light or Buddhist sympathizers in a certain way. I don't know if they would have classified themselves as Buddhist, but they listened to Jack Cornfield and meditated uh, on occasion. And uh when I was, so I sort of grew up with it around me. And then when I was 15, I read Siddhartha. And that was my first image uh, or strong image of a Buddhist monk in the figure of the Buddha. And it was one of, I think Christians refer to him as a, a moment of grace, um, just where you feel as if you've stepped into a footprint that was made for you. And I just had that intuition when I sort of, saw that figure in the book that there was something really interesting and worthy and, and more than, more than that, um, in that life path. I, I just had not realized it was even a, a possibility to dedicate yourself at that level to awakening and these high ideals. So that got me meditating about a half an hour a day, which steadily increased through college to, um, you know, an hour and a half a day uh, or more occasionally. And it just became the most important part of my life until I almost dropped out of uh, university my junior year. Uh, wiser minds, perhaps, than my own made me stick it out one more year. Uh, I'm not sure if they were wiser or not, but I did. And then after I graduated, I um, I was looking into grad schools, but just this sense of uh, vague discontent had been growing in me for years of 
feeling I was doing something worthwhile in some ways, but nothing worthy of, of my death is how I would put it. Um, and the, it just came to a, a climax driving down the 101, looking into grad schools, um, listening to Top 40 radio the whole time, reading the new Hunger Games, distracting myself as I had been for years at that point. And then I stepped into a Bayagiri monastery for 15 minutes and it became very clear to me that I needed a container like that if I wasn't going to uh, dilute my life um, to the point where I, I wouldn't, it would be half of what I, I w- it was meant to be. So that really changed things. And then I uh, went to Shavasti Abbey and did a um, brief retreat called uh, uh, Exploring Monastic Life and ended up but the Thai force tradition was calling to me um, and, you know, the teachings of Longport Cha, the Pali Canon. So I headed off to Thailand and ordained at a monastery there named Wat Mopjon. The tradition's simplicity, its power, um, its strictness of Vinaya with not handling money, um, really important aspects to me. And just the fact that there's an, like quite a lot of teachers, Westerners included, within the tradition who I feel have encountered some level of awakening was very heartening. So since then it just, um, it kind of felt like falling in love, uh, you know, like I ordained and stayed in Thailand for a few years. I traveled around to Australia a bit, uh, lived at a Bayagiri for a year and a half, but the Pacific Northwest kept calling to me and uh, near my native Spokane is Seattle. And so about a year ago, um, Actually, two years ago, or, or a year and a half, we I came back to the U.S. on election night, actually. And uh, since then, just um, moved to Seattle, and we're sort of seeing if there's the potential for a community to grow here. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I am at the moment. Uh, that uh, really leads us into our next question, because um, especially your mention of stepping into Abayagiri Monastery for 15 minutes and feeling as though there was something very special about this place, it does speak to the important role of a monastery, uh, whether it's a place where you want to go and live the rest of your life or whether you just need some time out from, from a busy life. It does have this really uh, valuable role as a place of peace. So... I think that leads us into talking about Clear Mountain Monastery. So, so where where is this project at now? And we'll perhaps start off by asking, what is the aspiration, first of all, for Clear Mountain Monastery? Um, well, the project itself, uh, people keep asking if they can come visit the monastery. And in the on the website, we intentionally have quotes around the word monastery because... It's basically, you know, me in a little hut behind some wonderful lay supporters house. And, you know, we're just, it's online and we're sort of forming a community until land gets offered, at which point we will have a physical location. But the goal, um, the aspiration is to have a, uh, to eventually get a piece of land somewhere near Seattle, um, close enough to a population center to have alms, uh, to go for alms every day. Um, that's something we've been doing since day one here is, you know, in the morning I go down to Pike place market and wait for 
uh, on the street. And if people come and give us food, then they do. And if they don't, then they don't, but they do usually. And, uh, you know, the Buddha set that down those rules so that, you know, monastics would really maintain these strong, uh, the strong contact with society. And, um, it's just been beautiful to see, uh, to sort of touch base with, with, you know, society every, every day in the morning in this really beautiful way. Um, so I, I really hope we can continue with that. And it also does mean the monastery will have to be probably somewhat near um, a population center. And I like that because I would like it to be quite accessible. David Stundel Rost, uh, a Christian monastic, was saying that in the Christian tradition, they're getting a lot less young men ordaining these days, which uh, isn't the case with us. But but he was even saying that with them, the lay people are more interested than ever in coming to a monastery. And so in some ways it's as relevant as it's ever been. So I also see so many practitioners who it feels like they have one foot in a monastery and in the words of Ajahn Sona, one foot on a banana peel, you know, and <laughs> very, very uncomfortable place to be. And honestly, the missing puzzle piece really does seem to be a monastery. It's it's so helpful to have a physical location uh, with sangha of people who really understand this path, where you can come and stay in our tradition for free. Um, it's a refuge, and so currently the hope is to establish something of that nature, where people um, it's a home for monastics. Uh, the intention is to have monks uh, live there, and then to have. Uh, also the ability of lay people to come and stay for as long or short as they want uh, for free, long-term lay stewards, and then hopefully to buy property nearby um, and be able to, you know, have people who come in the morning and evening and participate in chanting and meditation and then go about their lives, which is how it is in Thailand. Mm. I mean, this is just, this is the traditional model and it's going to take some work to get it to the U S but there's a real, I feel a real need for it. And, you know, just, I know this is a long answer, but there's also something worth saying in Buddhism came to the West a while ago, but it, it, it's been missing some key element. I feel um, you have a lot of sort of drier, more secularized versions of things. And, you know, there's this perennial debate about how much do we keep the old adjust to the new and, you know, logic would say, you know, drop all that old baggage. Um, just really try to make things as accessible as you can. Drop the ritual, the the props, the clothes, the robe. And it's just, ironically or strangely, it, it doesn't seem to be, people really are hungry for, for this path as a whole embodied life path, including the acknowledgments of the sacred, of the transcendent, of ritual, there's a real hunger for the religious. And w interestingly enough, you know, our, our, the project has been sort of um, drawing a lot of the people that I think the more secularized Vipassana movements haven't been, um, a lot of young people, quite a lot of diversity, and that's not intuitive, um, but it's fascinating and heartening. So that's a long answer. No, well, I, I think it's an excellent answer, and uh, it also gels with my experience and also the recent interviews which I've been doing is uh, 
agrees with everything you've just said, that there is a real hunger for it. And I, I, I just want to say hang in there because I really feel that the results will come. Um, I just did an interview with um, Dennis Shepherd, who's um, been involved with the Buddhist Society of Western Australia for a long time, and the, hearing his story about actually how difficult things were. And in the beginning, the monks, when they came from Thailand, almost a bit unexpectedly, were in a house in suburbia. And mm. that lasted for a couple of years, and it, there was really a need to get the monks into a monastery, and to not just for the monks, but also the lay people needed that place away from the city. Um, and, of course, once that happened, it just grew from there. And I, so I really have a lot of confidence. But I do want to ask a quick follow-up question is this is, um, you know, establishing a monastery in the West or in the United States is no easy feat. You're in for quite a bit of, um, you know, quite a few challenges, you know, whether it's the bureaucracy of government and permits and, uh, dealing with committees and there's and fundraising, there's a lot involved. Uh, what uh, what has made you decide that this is worth it? Because I mean, you could you could hang out with Ajahn Anan and uh, <laughs> or, or in Thailand and go on to be a Mahatera, a senior monk, mm-hmm. and not have to do a whole lot. You've uh, chosen a, a more difficult path. Part of it's just uh, intuition, like with. What Ajahn, you know, you referenced that stepping into a monastery by a Girian feeling within 15 minutes that was what I needed to do. And there's a similar draw back to the Pacific Northwest. Um, and just seeing the real interest and hunger and need for something like this in the West, I feel was uh, moving. And I felt like we could do um, something really worthwhile here. And Although in certain ways, living in Thailand might be easier in, in some sense. Um, you know, we're not in this for something that's, that's easy. Uh, you know, the, the goal is really to see where our lives could be best used and to be servants of the Dhamma in that. And so, yes, like there is bureaucracy, we're having to navigate board structures and all that, but also, you know, we're able to maintain space for practice. Um, and we're also, uh, we're walking, you know, the, the underlay of goodwill and interest and faith is as present here as, um, anywhere I've ever been, you know, it's, uh, there's no lack of, uh, this sort of sata and metta, um, in the people we're meeting whether, you know, Caucasian, Thai, anything. So it's, it's been great. And honestly, having Ajahn Kovilo has been a part, as a part of it has been essential as well in terms of keeping our monastic roots, because we are trying to balance on an interesting line of doing something a bit new, but um, really trying to remain very true to roots that we respect deeply and which are invaluable to us. So it, it's helpful to have a bit of a, um, you know, someone to be with on that path a bit. Um, and I, I also, I read uh, just before I uh, did the interview, I saw an article by you, Venerable Nisabo, about going, navigating arms round. Um, it was a lovely article. I really appreciated it. And if uh, I'll put a link to it below uh, in the description below this podcast. 
uh, and I noticed you went to arms round even when there's three feet of snow, which I just can't even imagine. <laughs> so well, it, clearly there is a lot of support and faith um, there in the Seattle area. Definitely. And I think yeah, that was think- actually Ajin Kobilo on that one, but uh, that's all right. <laughs> so I was okay, also... Sorry, I must have been- yeah. <laughs> and I think that the three feet must have been when... Um, visiting Pacific Hermitage, which is in Southern Washington. I don't think there ever gets to be three feet of snow in Seattle. Um, but there was, yeah, I mean, this past December, there was quite a bit, but, or at least it was extremely cold. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it does speak to the, the level of dedication uh, of you, both yourselves and also the lay people who uh, come out and offer arms as well. Um, I wanted to change tack a little bit because I noticed on your website, and from some recent episodes of your podcast, uh, that you've got an interest in early Buddhism, and this is something which has come up in a couple of the interviews I've done as well. Um, it's it, If you go back 10 years ago, you didn't really hear much mention of it. But now I'm hearing uh, teachers such as yourself start to refer, refer to early Buddhism. So what does early Buddhism mean to you? And how do you put that understanding into practice in 21st century America? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and, and actually a fairly new question for uh, myself, but one which I find quite fascinating um, and very rich to look into. I mean, when I did my Goenka retreat, the first Goenka retreat, he teaches in such an ecumenical way. You know, you, you don't even know that you're learning Buddhism. Like, I literally didn't know for about a year until I sat this Satipatthana course, which is basically the name of a, a sutta. It's you know the four foundations of mindfulness based on the you know two texts in the Pali Canon. And um, I think if I had known that it was Buddhism or an organized religion, I wouldn't have been interested at that point in my life. Um, but then coming across the meditation technique, then encountering that particular sutta, and then on access to insight, it's quite skillful at that time. And I think still there's not the whole Pali Canon is not translated on access to insight. Um, I'm not sure what percentage, but at the time it wasn't much, but many suttas, um, mostly translated by Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Um, and he chose, I mean, he's, um, you know, from America and he's choosing texts, which are also, I think, quite approachable for uh, people who didn't grow up in a Buddhist context. So he doesn't throw you in the deep end of either deep philosophy, which you might find in Dika Nikaya 1, you know, the Brahmajala Sutta, or these very, you know, very philosophical texts, or especially like mystical texts, like others you would find in the Dika Nikaya, or especially like um, hard to believe texts, like, you know, emphasizing devas, like the Mahasamaya Sutta or, uh, or whatnot. So basically I was introduced to Pali Theravada texts which seemed very reasonable. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't yet see some of the suttas, which might seem unreasonable for someone coming new to it. So my faith just kept growing and growing in the Pali canon. And at that time, you know, access to insight wasn't really interested in early Buddhist texts. I don't know if the, the phrase existed yet. Um, well, it wasn't interested in them per se, like it wasn't doing the uh, comparative studies of the Agamas in Chinese or the Tibetan manuscripts and Sanskrit texts and, and whatnot. It was just translated from the Pali Canon. And for me, that was enough. And 
my faith kept growing. Like there's more and more of a body of texts that I can have faith in because they're very rational and aren't at all mystical. Um, and so I'm like, okay. And then I start being introduced to texts which maybe do mention other realms or do mention rebirth. And I'm like, okay, these other texts seem very uh, reliable in terms of my meditative experience. Maybe there's some truth, or at least I could sus- you know, suspend my disbelief in rebirth for a while saying, okay, these texts seem to be saying something. Um, and it wasn't, probably wasn't until maybe three or four years ago, maybe five years ago when Bhante Analio's books, probably Satipatthana being the first, um, and his follow-up book on the perspectives on Satipatthana, which really introduce, um, yeah, this early Buddhist text approach, you know, like looking at uh, Chinese versions of, of texts. And um, yeah, I do find it quite interesting, especially just being able, I think from the from very early outset, being inspired by Pali texts, I didn't want to come into it and didn't come into it with a very like super critical, you know, fault finding mind. Like this sutta is definitely fake. This one's real. That one's fake, 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 real, 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 mm-hmm. fake. Um, I was basically like, okay, this one is applicable, 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 not yet applicable, uh, suspect, applicable, applicable, suspect, suspect, applicable, whatever. Um, and that's kind of, you know, how I've held the, the Pali Canon and there are books in it, which, you know, Ajahn Brahmali, Ajahn Sujato, um, certainly Bhante Analio, Bhikkhu Bodhi to some extent, um, really being quite scholarly and picking out and being quite explicit about which texts they feel are, are earlier based on these comparative studies and their work is fascinating. Um, their insights are very deep. There's a, you might know the name of it, Saul, or maybe Tanisabo, this, uh, an essay which was written in the last six months by, by Bhante Sujato um, called Comparing Theravada and Early Buddhist Texts on Sutta's Central Discuss. Um, but fascinating article comparing um, classical Theravada, that is commentarial Pali literature, um, and early Buddhist text insights. Were you thinking how early Buddhism differs from Theravada? That one? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Okay. That's, and, and how do you, uh, so that explains your understanding of early Buddhism, but how do you think this is going to translate into lived reality uh, in the United States today? Or, or does it have no particular bearing on um, how one would practice today? What, what, what are your thoughts? I'm just trying to work out. Is there a relationship between these ideas and practice? Uh, well, I feel that, um, I mean, certainly uh, Westerners are more interested in comparative studies. Like if you get a text which is replicated in multiple traditions, in multiple languages, Westerners who generally tend to be more skeptical about a religion that they weren't born into, um, you know, might you know, give more credence to a text which is, you know, appears in multiple sources, multiple countries, etc. Um, in terms of practice, I mean, the people who are doing a lot of this research, the monks who I've already named, um, Bhante Inalio, Bhante Sujato, um, Ajahn Bramali, they're not just scholars, but they're also meditators. Um, and 
I think there are insights, certainly the ones you see in um, Bhante Analio's books on Satipatthana. I mean, the whole sutta is about meditation and um, the insights that he has there, basically pulling from, it's like five or seven different versions of this Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta in different languages and kind of calling out what are the common elements of, of these different suttas. And it presents like a very, a much more simplified and streamlined version of the whole discourse and of meditation, which I think some people might find easier to adopt than the more complicated and elaborate version, which you might find in any one particular uh, discourse. So that's just one example. Well, that is also an interesting point because I think sometimes, especially for lay people, but even I think for uh, monastics, looking at the suttas, especially those related to meditation practice, it can seem like if you're just looking just at the translations of the suttas, it can seem a little bit hard to relate to in some respects. Are you suggesting that there are accretions of these texts which perhaps have added in a little bit and made it a little bit more complicated than it actually was in, originally intended to be? Um, I think it gives each individual person a, a wider choice of, um, yeah, you know, some people appreciate the elaboration, mm. like the Pali version of the Satipatthana Sutta, just because that's our example right now, presents, you know, quite a few more practices. It presents the most number of practices of these different recensions. And for people who like choice and like all these different, um, options, that can be an interesting uh, avenue, which certainly has been the living tradition in Theravada countries for the last, you know, twenty five hundred years. Um, other, but there are other texts which are problematic in in Pali. You know, there might be a term which you don't find in the other recensions, or there might be, um, yeah, a description of meditation which doesn't make sense. You know, but you look at a different a different version of that that text, a cognate text. And you might find, oh, actually, they define this term differently. Um, like one version of the Satipatthana presents, uh, you know, visualizing or light. You know, the perception of light is one aspect of meditation on the body, which is kind of fascinating. And as to whether which which one of these versions is the real one, or which one is the oldest, or if they're all, you know, there's some like Ur text or some like proto text which is preceded all of them, and there are partially true. Um, for me, it doesn't really matter that much. It just gives me more of a range to, to choose from. And um, yeah, some of these things are, you, know, you might never know which one's the oldest or what's, um, what's the case there, but having options for practice. And they're all very, very similar, which actually does increase faith uh, for me. Mm. I um, wanted to change tack a little bit. Um, and talk about the Thai forest tradition, but I do feel like there's a connection between these two things uh, because the current movement to try and understand early Buddhist texts and trying to understand the original Buddhist context is in some ways got some parallels between the founders of the modern Thai forest tradition who, the way I understand it, was we're trying to get back to the roots of, well, what is... Um, a bhikkhu supposed to do um, and, you know, and to get back to well what is the goal of the monastic life and just to just focus on that um, 
but do you think that the Thai forest tradition, do you feel like from a point of view of looking at early Buddhism, do you feel like it is a really good expression of early Buddhism or is there some sort of distinction between the Thai forest tradition and early Buddhism? Um, a bit of a controversial question, but maybe get you thinking, you know, is it really good expression or is there some distinction? Is there something that's been added on there? Hmm. I think the of the traditions I know of, um, well, I don't want to compare. Um, I feel like Thai forest um, is a pretty impressive um, expression of the early Buddhist ethic in, in a lot of ways. Um, even things which, you know, a, one problem with this movement towards EBTs and early Buddhist texts, I think, is it's a bit of a carte blanche for, you know, modern secular Buddhists to really sort of dismiss so much as later interpolation. And, um, you know, you can, you can make the Buddha into a lot of different things if you're mm -hmm. liberal enough with what you consider later interpolation. And, um, what Ajahn Kovilo is saying around giving choice to individuals is it's, it is a really, uh, I think healthy way to look at it in some ways. And obviously there's, um, dangers in that as well. So one of the aspects that is so, uh, tempting to dismiss in the modern milieu is, um, aspects to do with hierarchy, with uh, rigidity of form, with formality, mm -hmm. with ritual, um, which are all very imp like essential aspects of the Thai forest tradition. You know, you bow mm -hmm. to the monk that's senior to you. If you're less than three, if you're three years junior to that monastic, uh, I believe you should request to sit on a bench next to them. Um, and just the practice of upatalking or assisting a senior monastic, it's, uh, in the Thai forest tradition, it's spelled out in a level of detail, which, you know, coming as a lay person um, into that environment would just seem absurd. Like exactly where do you put the, um, you know, water kettle that you're going to wash the senior monastics hands with? And have you folded the Kleenex tip? You know, things like this. Mm. Um so it'd be very tempting to dismiss those aspects as just later accumulation because people love the Dhamma, but the Vinaya, you know, because of our Puritan roots, uh, gets kind of classified as this sort of uh, outdated, you know, um, puritanical system overlaid over this beautiful Dhamma that's beyond convention. But the Buddha taught the Dhamma Vinaya. He taught both because you need the form to hold as a container that you know, those deeper wisdom truths and um, to see how a monastic who has attained some level of purity of heart embodies that form, that quite detailed form, um, like, you know, of the Vinaya, like Longpur Cha, um, you realize the freedom that's hidden within it. And mm -hmm. um, so all, all to say that the Thai forest traditions focus on those aspects, which so easily get dismissed. Actually, I think is very true to the original sp spirit of Buddhism, 
but in a way that's not apparent unless you've actually really read the original, you know, like the Vibhanga, the commentaries on the Vinaya, and seen how detailed those early monastics were and exactly how they prepared a dwelling for a visiting monastic or, you know, clean their dwellings or how they were, you know, told to care for these, um, you know, someone they were looking after or a sick monk. Like, it's just um, all to say that I think the EBT movement has to be held carefully, the early Buddhist text movement, so that it's not used as a, a sort of weapon to alter the Buddha into what we want him to be, um, including kind of a, you know, or the form. Um, and I think Thai forest tradition, a lot of the elements of it, which aren't, don't easily mesh with Western society actually are um, very much true to the original spirit. Um, and, and there are certain aspects where it does also defer, I believe, or change or uh, diverge from the uh, original spirit or from some of the things you find in the uh, early Buddhist texts as well. And, and some of those are quite significant uh, divergences um, in points of Vinaya and uh, some other areas as well. I have to say that's an excellent answer. It's <clears throat> far better than I expected. It's, it's a really, really good answer. Um, I, you only have to go search for Buddhism for five minutes on the internet and you'll find every kind of interpretation and nonsense uh, under the sun. Um, and a lot of people in the West, uh, a lot of Buddhists in the West, kind of when they think of the Vinaya, they think, well, this is all too much and it's too difficult and um, why are we doing it anyway? Uh, but my experience has been um, quite the opposite, as uh, when you have a monk or a nun who is really carefully keeping the vineyard, um, and I'm just thinking of, I, we had a monk here in the southwest um, who, who is very, very dedicated, not just to the vineyard, but to the Thai forest tradition in that he wanted to go on arms round every day, and he had to walk for an hour to get into the town from where mm-hmm. he was staying and then walk an hour back. But the impact that had on the lay community was really, that really inspired them, both the simplicity of where he was staying in the in the forest, as well as the arms round and just everything, the, you know, the care and attention, as you've uh, mentioned, Venerable. Um, is that what um, you're finding as well? Do you find that um, lay people are drawn to support monastics who are paying attention to keeping the vineyard very carefully. And you mentioned not handling money earlier on, which is a major hassle, as you know, <laughs> in terms of trying to get things done. Um, what's your experience been so far? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's an archetypal power to what the Buddha laid down with the figure of the renunciant. Um, I feel like, you know, the Reformation in Europe you know, the Catholic church had to be reformed in some way, but what it did rob us of in America, I think was the figure of the renunciant. And I feel like our culture has been scrambling to fill up that gap for the last many centuries and projecting that role onto its artists um, and other figures. And Bukowski is just a terrible role model for, (laughs) you know, spiritual guidance. Um, You know, so people seem to be really, uh, hungry for, um, you know, a certain 
for that figure. And the Buddha just really described and created a form which embodies it beautifully. And some of those rules can seem a little much these days. Um, you know, some, for example, we have a rule around not being able to intentionally be in private with a woman. Um, then again, you look at what he was trying to protect and, and you look at the bloodbath that is sexual scandal in spiritual circles over the past 50 years. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's justification for a high fence for the delicacy of that garden that you're guarding and the danger of it's being compromised. So the more I've lived this life, the more I've appreciated those, those really clear boundaries of the Buddha and the rules such as, uh, you know, not handling money, um, uh, not being able to store food, ask for anything besides water, you know, I mean, they seem completely um, impractical. And when you live them, it causes you to surrender completely and something magical happens where the world rises in answer to you and it, it shouldn't work. And it absolutely does. Um, you know, and it, it leads to this, a pretty adventurous life. Like I, we do this thing where we walk Tudong, which is where you wander on faith and just sleep on the side of the road, accept what's given to you. Ajin Kovilo and I've gone before together. It was great. But, uh, you know, I remember Greyhound dropped me off at the wrong stop um, when I was going to begin one from LA. And they were sort of like, oh, don't worry. It's just a $5 bus ticket to where you need to go. And I was like, I don't, I can't, I don't have $5. So it was a two day walk. And it was an amazing two days. You know, like I talked to 15 people who were, you know, these beautiful interactions out of nowhere. And the, the Buddha intentionally put these rules down for a reason. And it, what it creates is, is amazing. It's, uh, and it, and it is very easy to say it shouldn't work and to just to give up those rules, but the stubbornness of this tradition doesn't let us do that. And thank goodness, because the beauty of what it creates is astounding. Oh, Sadhu, I couldn't agree more. And I'd also add to that, that it seems to me that when you have good monastics who adhere to the vineyard over a period of time, the conduct of the lay people also comes up as well, not necessarily because it has to or because they're being told to, but because they just observe it and it just kind of absorb it, uh, is, is my observation over a period of time. No, I'd, um, I'd, I'd very much, and I'd love to hear Arjun Kovilo's take on that one too, if we could actually. I because sure, he's been absolutely. very involved here. Yeah, I mean, just briefly, I mean, yeah, you see, in regards to what you just said. Saul, you know, you really see that, you know, walking, I did a Tudong pilgrimage walk in Thailand. And yeah, some of these forest monasteries, like this monastery up in the hills in Ganchanaburi. And yet when you get, when you approach, when you get close to the, the monastery and you walk through the village, you just start noticing that everybody's houses are much more clean. And like everything around the house is just much more, you know, well-organized. The whole village, you know, seems more quiet than the, the previous villages. And then you get and you go, okay, this is right close to the monastery. And you realize it's a great monastery where everything is similarly um, well-positioned, has its place and really does emphasize meditation. And yeah, I mean, certainly I think that's Tanisabo and I's like personal experience and probably the experience of most all Western monks. I mean, all Western monks have come to the monastery as lay people and 
um, yeah, you come to a good monastery and your, your actions change, your way of speaking changes and your, your way of being changes, your way of sitting changes and walking. And just because you see beautiful examples, I mean, being at a Bayagiri with Lumpur Pasano, I mean, he's just the most upright, but not rigid, uh, fluid and um, totally concrete um, example of just a, a great and beautiful practitioner of the Buddhist path that you want to emulate it and you, you naturally try to even unconsciously. Um, so yeah, it's mm. very important. Case. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, I want to, um, again, I'm trying to cover a lot of ground uh, in this particular interview because there's so much I wanted to ask you about, but I did want to talk about your um, online presence because that was uh, one of the things that really got me curious uh, about what you were doing is that you've really put a lot of effort into uh, the Clear Mountain Monastery webpage, but uh, especially the Clear Mountain Dharma YouTube channel and the podcast. Um, I'm curious to know what has motivated you to set up these online resources and what are you hoping to achieve through these channels? The... Yeah, they. Uh, I didn't expect as a forced monk to be, you know, learning how to build websites. And yet <laughs> um, the Buddha recommended speaking the vernacular of the land you're in, you know, and I think this is our vernacular now. Uh, these platforms are so much of how people are receiving the Dhamma and they can be done beautifully. It takes a certain amount of restraint and we've had to figure out a balance, which we're still understanding. Um, for example, the distinction between having a Facebook page labeled Clear Mountain Monastery and having one labeled Friends of Clear Mountain Monastery that's stewarded by a lay person. Um, that's what we've moved towards because it is beautiful to have a degree of separation and this danger of ego um, making its way. It's just something you have to cut off whenever and wherever you're able to. Because um, uh, monastics are, you know, vulnerable in exactly the same way. And the Buddha had a whole book of the Samyutta Nikaya dedicated to the, towards the dangers of um, fame and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, reputation. So it's a tension that I think most forced monasteries are approaching now, but I think most teachers have come down at least on the side of we need to be putting out um, the Dhamma in some way that people of this generation can access. And if we're going to do that, I think um, the beauty, one of the beautiful parts about the monastic ethic is, is you just really try to do it as beautifully as you can. So um, yeah, we've been walking that line a bit as well. And but it's a new generation and they deserve the Dhamma as much as anyone. So, mm. Well, it certainly does have um, a huge impact. Um, as you said, there's, there is that hunger for the Dharma and someone's, you've got to find it somewhere. And I think many of the people who, uh, Westerners who came across Dharma perhaps from the 1970s onwards uh, to the, up to the 1990s, even they had to, it was an effort. Um, and it's it's nice now that you can have the Dharma on your phone in your pocket um, and take it with you, and that's, I think, really something pretty amazing. Um, 
I would like to just ask for the benefit of our audience, what kind of teachings and resources are you making available on your Clear Mountain Dharma channel? So we uh, are live streaming um, most of our gatherings. Uh, So every Saturday we have a morning meditation and we live stream that so people can access it. Um, We have a Wednesday evening YouTube live stream Q&A and a follow-up Zoom session for kind of a more intimate uh, atmosphere as well and, and helping build community that way. We have a Discord channel. That's something new we've been experimenting with, but... On it, we have a uh, channel for upasakas, uh, which are people committing to take the five precepts and keep the daily meditation practice. And basically, um, we're, we run through a curriculum with them, and uh, they meet every two weeks uh, on video chat to kind of discuss uh, Dhamma in that way. And it, it's a good, it's a helpful means that we're just kind of experimenting with to help people support themselves in keeping this higher standard of practice. And there's a real, I think people want to be held accountable in that way. I mean, it's, it's helpful to have. Uh, so we've been doing that. Um, we, uh, gosh, anything else, Ajahn Kobe? Oh, we've been doing quite a bit of uh, interviews with senior monastics on the YouTube channel as we're able, uh, nuns and monks as well. And that's been a real, uh, blessing um just talking to these amazing and and some quite possibly enlightened beings from all over the world and uh also what the internet's allowed us to do a bit more is supplement retreats we held in person in uh seattle um we usually try to have a uh bikuni uh zoom into um our retreats if possible and things of that sort so it's been really a boon on a lot of different levels to have the online presence and um, means. Mm. Do you find also um, that you've got a little bit of a network happening um, on the West Coast with other uh, monks and nuns from the from the forest tradition? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, our we have several advisors. Uh, the nuns at Kuna Buddhist Vihara are two of our monastic advisors, as is Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, and, and then we have lots of informal advisors. Ajahn Kovilo and I speak often with abbots of monasteries up and down the West Coast. Um, Long Propasano, Ajahn Sudanto, we uh, are in somewhat regular contact with Ajahn Jayasaro and Ajahn Sona as well. So that's a real, um, that's a real help because you know, we are young monks. We don't really know what we're doing. <laughs> so it's, it's very good. It's very good to have a bit of, a bit of help with that. It's, it's a, I think it's fantastic. And it's something that didn't really exist. If you think about the likes of um, Ajahn Pasano, um, Ajahn Brahm, um, and others in the West, Ajahn Sumedho, when they went to the West, they weren't really much more senior than where you are at now, I think. And they really, I think it was a bit of a struggle. So it's really great that you've got that um, support um, but uh, and also the ability to seek advice because you don't always know what to do in certain situations. Yeah, and I mean, the technology enables that to a large degree as well. I mean, we've got, Tanisabo and I both have individual, um, you know, planned, you know, FaceTime or some kind of other 
a video chat call with uh, Ajahn Sudanto every month. We've got a planned one with Ajahn Jayasaro every other month, as Tan Nisibo mentioned. And yeah, the technology enables that. I mean, we're uh, not in the same city, you know, often not not in the same state, but uh, still be able to contact our teachers, not in the same country in the case of some of our other teachers. And yeah, the technology really enables that. And um, monasteries in the West, I mean, that's another broader issue. It's not, you know, um, the issue of, you know, technology, but when this early generation, Ajahn Pasano, Ajahn Brahm, um, Lumpur Sumedho, there was no option. You didn't have a monastery, you know, a, a certainly not a Theravada monastic option in, in America you know, when they're going to, to Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka in the 60s and 70s. And so it's, it's a huge thing to, I mean, I ordained, I was able to ordain in America and that's, that's huge. And um, yet to have practice centers and monasteries where people can come in the country in person, you know, that's, that's huge as well in addition to the, uh, the digital presence that we have. Well, look, it's been really fantastic talking to you. I've got actually so many more questions I'd love to ask. Um, I might have to uh, hit you up again maybe a, a few months or down the track or maybe next year. Um, but I do have one more quick question, which is um, this is a very inspiring project. Is there a way that listeners could offer some support or make a donation to the Clear Mountain Monastery Project? That's uh, kind of you to ask. Um you know, if people uh, want to go to our website, um, they'll find ways to tune into different events, um, sign up for our newsletter. To be honest, the, the most powerful way people can contribute is just by by practicing these teachings and tuning in as they're able. If people do feel inspired to um, give a donation of another kind, then uh, there's the usual donate button on the website. We are hoping to raise funds eventually for a piece of land and, and a Dharmic refuge here. Um, at the same time, I want to hold up very clearly that this is a, um, everything is given really free of charge with no expectation. It's, um, a, you know, it's one of the real beauties of this form is I, I feel like we can say honestly that, um, People may give if they're inspired, and that's wonderful, but we never want uh, this to be an ethic of exchange at all. It's a mutual field of giving. And um, so, yeah, if people want to tune in, go to the website, you'll see what's available. And we'd love uh, if they ever come to the US, then uh, come in for a visit. Uh, so, and I'll be making sure that in the description below, you have got a link if you wish to donate and make some merit, but also just support this really, really valuable um, project, Clear Mountain Monastery. And of course, as Venerable Nisabo has just said, if you are in the Seattle area and you want to visit, you are most welcome to visit and pay respects and uh, participate in their programs. Uh, Venerables, I really, really appreciate that you've come on Treasure Mountain today. Um, it's been really great talking to you, and I wish you all the very best for uh, the Clear Mountain Monastery Project and your online um, efforts as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Saul. Yeah, this has been fun. Thank you, Saul, for all you do with uh, spreading the Dhamma and uh, bringing these voices of various teachers into the open. Without any exaggeration, it has been a real privilege to interview Ajahn Kovalo and Venerable Nisabo. When I started working on setting up the Treasure Mountain podcast, 
I was so focused on the technicalities and my very long to-do list of tasks that I never gave much thought to how these interviews would impact me personally. And I can say now, all of the guests so far have been such good, commendable human beings that I've been uplifted by talking to them. And in all the interactions that I've had with Venerable Nisabo and Arjun Kovalo, both prior and during the interview, I was touched by their positivity and kindness. I really hope that you too felt uh, this whilst you're listening to the episode. If you are ever in Seattle area, I recommend you do yourself a favour and visit these fine monks. And if you can't get there in person, I recommend that you check out the Clear Mountain Dhamma YouTube channel and podcast. I've included links to these and to the Clear Mountain Monastery in the description below. Also, if you go to treasuremountain.info and click on the guests link, you'll see all of the guests that we've had so far on Treasure Mountain, as well as links to their web pages, podcasts, Facebook pages and other links. And whilst you are on the treasuremountain.info website, you could leave a comment by clicking on the microphone logo in the bottom right of the screen, or you could sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Treasure Mountain Podcast. I hope you can join us again next week as we seek for the treasure within.